This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and today I am very pleased to be joined by Lori Rubel, who's a professor at Brooklyn College, City University of New York. Lori, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. We are going to be talking about Lori's article that was published in the Journal of Urban Mathematics Education entitled, Equity-Directed Instructional Practices, Beyond the Dominant Perspective. Um, but Lori, before we get into that article, where there's been a lot of attention given, I first want to go back and just um, hear a little bit about where you did your graduate studies and what the focus of your dissertation was. Uh, sure. My graduate studies were done um, at Teachers College, um, Columbia University in New York City, and the project that I did was an investigation of probabilistic thinking among middle and high school students. And who is your major advisor for that? I worked there with Dr. Henry Pollock, who's a, a mathematician and also works with math ed students at Teachers College. He's a famous um, senior mathematician, and it was a real privilege to get to work with him. All right. We're going to focus on your article in June that's available online for free download for everybody. I'll have a link in the show notes. And this focuses on equity-directed instruction. And I want to ask you about what motivated you to work on this piece, to focus on these models for um, equity-oriented instruction and presenting cases of teachers who are instructing in ways that align with some of these models. What was it that motivated you to complete this study? Well, the, the study was in the context of a, a professional development project that was funded by the National Science Foundation. I received funding to uh, work with groups of teachers in New York City, teachers who are middle school or high school teachers in hyper-segregated schools and low-income neighborhoods, most of the time only African-American Latino students. Uh, so I was working with teachers on improving their practice, becoming better mathematics teachers, and, you know, I, I, I needed to come up with what does it mean to be a better math teacher in these schools? Is it the same as being a, being a better math teacher anywhere? Or does it, does it matter that I'm here in this place with, with these students? And I, I've been working at that and thinking about it. And this piece was my way of trying to share with the field uh, my, my perspective on what I think it means to, to, to be a great math teacher. And I tried to break that down for people so that they could work with teachers in, in other parts of the world um, on these same practices. So was the collection of these four models for equity-oriented pedagogies, was that part of the project conceptualization or did that come later when you were just trying to think about what was happening with the teachers and how you were working with them? Did the four models become a way to think about that or were the four models really part of the initial conception of the study? Um, the four models were part of the conception of the study, although I don't think I, I said it in this way. Um, I was a postdoc at the University of Wisconsin, and so, of course, I had spent a lot of time thinking about about teaching for understanding um, and all the work that, that Tom Carpenter has done. That, that was always kind of the, the cornerstone. And then I was also at University of Wisconsin, fortunate to study with Gloria Ladson-Billings and learned a great deal about culturally relevant pedagogy. So, so I had those, those two pieces, and then a little bit later learned about complex instruction 
and thinking about participation in really um, meaningful and strategic ways. And then finally, the fourth one, the teaching mathematics for social justice, which I really learned a lot about from from Rico Goodstein and from Rochelle Gutierrez. And so I was really trying to to figure out, well, if you're working with teachers and you've got all four of these things, you know, how do you do it? How do you put how do you put it together? The project was really uh, my effort to try to do that. And the paper is looking at how teachers try to take on all four of those things. Uh, I see. So really, these were four that you have been thinking about, and now you're working with teachers, and so now you can investigate how the teachers also grapple with these four different models. Right. So just to run down those again, so there's the standards-based mathematics instruction, there's complex instruction, there's culturally relevant pedagogy, and there's teaching math for social justice. So you lay out those four models, but then you also bring a theoretical frame to them um, about this idea of dominant dimensions of equity and critical dimensions of equity. So I was wondering, how does that frame lay over the four pedagogical models? Mm-hmm. Just to remind listeners, that frame is not my frame. That's that's Rochelle Gutierrez's frame. She talks about how we can think about equity in dominant terms, in meaning in terms of, of access and achievement, or we can think about equity in critical terms, which relate to themes of identity and power. So that that's her framework. And what, what I tried to do was try to to map those four pedagogical models onto Rochelle's critical dominant framework. So that my contribution is doing that mapping, but not the categories themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, she also, um, I draw heavily on Rochelle's work because she is such an amazing thinker and writer, and she's taught the field that it's one thing to think about playing the game. That's the, the, the dominant form of equity. We want people to have access to, to mathematics. And it's another thing, it's, it's, it's a different thing to, to change the game. In other words, we want, we want the system to be more fair and we want people to uh, be able to participate in change making of, of their own lives and, and of our society. Mm-hmm. So how did that overlay end up working out? This is kind of how you thought through the connection between the models and the framework. Right. So the, the teaching for understanding and classroom participation, those, are, those really go together really nicely. It's hard to think about um, meaningful participation if you're not doing standards-based math instruction. Those, those, those pair together really nicely. And there are voices out there in, in the scholarship and in classrooms where, where people feel like um, that's enough, meaning that's sufficient, that, yeah. that that is teaching for social justice because that's really good math teaching. And, mm-hmm. and maybe that's what we're doing in the affluent schools. And so that's what we should be doing in, in all of the schools. This is really top-notch teaching. And I guess what I'm poking at, though, is that that that's not going to change anything. That's not going to change the the society in in ways that we'd like it to. Whereas the critical practices, the you know really thinking about how does this mathematics relate to the everyday lives of my students? What questions can it help them to even ask or to answer? What is pressing in their lives, and how ma- how might mathematics help them to respond to inequities that that they face um, or will face? Those are the aspects of equity instruction that can change the world, not just help people survive in the world. Mm -hmm. And in my reading of your article and hearing you just now, I mean, I just kind of think about standards-based math instruction and complex instruction as, like you argue, fitting with the dominant perspective, because it's really just giving access to what we think are the best ways of teaching math. 
And so we want to then have all students have access to those opportunities. But culturally relevant pedagogy, teaching math for social justice, this is really empowering students, recognizing students as coming from diverse backgrounds, having diverse experiences, lots of things to contribute, and really trying to build on those in new ways. And then, like you're saying here, in ways that might actually change the world for the better, right? Right. And it's it's not just about giving opportunity, kind of giving this to the students. I think I think of it also as our letting go and giving space for the students where we might have to give some things up. We meaning we people in power, we might have to give things up to let go of some things to really make space for students and their voices and what questions they have. And in doing so, you know, that might create new kinds of mathematics. Mathematics gets created by people's by people's questions and people's curiosity. And so Again, like Rochelle has said, it's not just about bringing math to the people, but we want to bring people to the math. Yeah, letting students have more of a say about what they're actually going to learn and what form it's going to take. Right, that takes some letting go and giving up. Making space for other people requires some concession of power, too. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Lori Rubel from Brooklyn College City University of New York about her article in Joom. And you mentioned that this article comes from the NSF project. And I was wondering if you could just let us know a little bit more about the setting of that project, the data that you collected, and anything that we need to know about the teachers who we're going to hear a little bit more about in a second. Uh, sure. The teachers were all New York City public school teachers. Um, most of them were high school teachers. Uh, a few were middle school but they were all in in teaching in secondary schools, and I recruited them through a professional organization in New York City with an eye for geographic diversity across the city of New York, but also giving preference to to, to people who taught in hyper-segregated schools in the the most marginalized communities. So those were the group of teachers. And I did did a few iterations of this with different groups of teachers, and this paper is about the, the last iteration. And the teachers, the teachers are great. Teachers are always great um, in terms of they showed up. They really wanted to learn. They were, they came to sessions um, in the summer and after school because they were committed to doing the best by their students because it really it mattered to them. It mattered to them professionally and I think also as, as human beings. My team and I, we were doing um, sessions with the whole group. Um, across this time length of a year and then we would go and visit them at their schools Uh, and the visits would include an observation of a lesson and uh, an interview and just kind of some time to check in with them on an individual basis. These were always scheduled in advance, there were no surprises and they were encouraged to to teach like they've been teaching and um, that the visits were more part of our research, but also a way for me to respond to them in the group sessions, because if I could understand um, their successes and their challenges, I, the, the professional development sessions were going to be were going to be better tailored mm. to, to them as opposed to kind of some hypothetical. Right. Yeah, that's great. And then you present three cases in the article that are really the focus, and they illustrate that there is quite a bit of success with the dominant equity practices. But then there are these continuing struggles with the critical equity practices. Um, so I wanted to take those points in turn. What were some of the successes that you saw from these teachers with regard to the dominant equity practices? One of the um, measures that we were looking for when we visited a teacher was uh, we were using uh, Mary Kay Stein and colleagues' cognitive demand framework. And so we were looking at at the level of, of cognitive demand of the mathematical task in that lesson. and 
research would tell us that in urban schools and these kinds of communities, usually teachers are teaching uh, low-level tasks. And we found that among the, the three case teachers that I profile here, um, they worked hard um, and they were uh, successful at, at using high-level tasks. So that's an example of um, an, of a success, and that's a real success. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really d- take take nothing away from them on that. Um, and similarly, I think it, it does kind of go together. Once you're once you're using um, high demand tasks, I think it becomes easier to think about what kinds of uh, participation opportunities you're going to make available in your classroom. Once you're not just giving them a worksheet and having them practice, mm-hmm. you can open up. Um, maybe they're going to be investigating a question, gathering data, presenting ideas, all kinds of other things. And so we found, especially among these, the three teachers that are profiled in the paper, they were at the top of, of, of all of the research scales in terms of those kinds of things. You know, they were the real standouts, and their classrooms were exciting places to be, and and they're talent. They're really talented teachers. Yeah, that's great. That doesn't always happen, having been in a lot of classrooms. And so, when you do see a classroom like that, it is exciting. I think that's a good way to describe it because there's there's math ideas happening, right? And the students are building this meaning and talking about it, and it's really fun to see. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there was you know there was a there was a kind of but but dot 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 mm-hmm. and I tried to really crack that open what what is this thing in in other words sometimes um it, it was something kind of uh, intangible in terms of uh, relationship visible relationships between a teacher and the students and kind of why is there this undercurrent of um this sense that the students don't feel like this teacher is really on their side where is this mm-hmm. coming from and so that, that, you know, prompted me to, to push a little bit further in my own thinking and to really ask them and talk with them. I think I'd include a lot of interview excerpts asking them, you know, why, for instance, you've got this lesson about pollution and hazards around, you know, where you're going to locate a home. And the whole lesson was, was kept entirely in these abstract terms. And you know, you look around and it directly connected to these major issues of this neighborhood, which this teacher certainly was aware of. And she just, she she agreed and thought, you know, I don't know why I didn't think of that. Mm. And I think she had some quote where she said, I think I just, I have my blinders on. Mm. I think that's one of the examples in the paper. Yeah. And I can definitely relate to having those blinders because it's very easy to just kind of go forward with the math ideas and have a lot of focus about these math ideas you're trying to develop instead of realizing, hey, let me pull back for a second and like actually think about these students and what something that they might be able to build on. So that is an a- additional challenge for sure, but can be very worthwhile because of the empowerment that we talked about earlier, how it can lead to empowerment and having students be the root of what it is that they're learning. Uh, what were some of the other struggles that you saw related to more of the critical side of things? One of the uh, projects that we did together was working together on ways that we could actually learn about these neighborhoods um, and, the, and the people who live in them. And we, among the group of teachers, um, did all kinds of exercises together of actually going and visiting places and, and trying to pay attention in different ways to what is this place and who are the people here and how did they get here and what's going on here. Uh, we tried to practice that and think about how you can how you can then bring that into what you do as a math teacher. 
it's hard to do. I think uh, one of the results of that, which was which was not uh, what I had hoped for, was that the things they end up noticing in those places are all the kind of things that they might have said about the neighborhood even without going to look. Mm. Um, in other words, like I think in the paper I talk about, I gave some data, some of the quotes of teachers of, of talking about the police presence and the, and the dirtiness or um, all the things that might be unpleasant about or might seem unpleasant or, you know, about this particular neighborhood. And it was really hard to push them to another place of, no, let's, these are people, A, and B, let's think about this, this place as a, this is a, a place that has come to be like this for all kinds of reasons. And let's just kind of look at it and think about how has this place come to be. It was really hard to do that. I feel like I didn't do it well enough. Teachers often just seemed, seemed afraid. Um, and when people are afraid, afraid meaning afraid to, to go and be in those places, and when people are afraid, you, you know, you can, you can challenge it, but it's difficult to work with someone else's fear mm-hmm. other than to kind of name it and, and say, you know, these are, these are your students and you're afraid of them. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure that that always, um, that it, it, maybe if we didn't have enough time together or it was just, it just wasn't enough because this is, a, you know, a one-year math program and we're talking about systems and processes that are very firmly in place. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to be able to, to change that in that afternoon. Yeah. So really this, the part of the story in this article about the struggles, it's really struggles that the teachers are having, but also struggles that you're having because it's hard work. It's, it's going to be a struggle to work on these issues that are entrenched, that are you know, built on a lot of history, and also that are not what we're maybe used to doing in mathematics in terms of like, you know, teaching mathematics for social justice is not something that we have a long tradition of doing. So it's maybe just going to be a struggle. And maybe the value here is just in documenting the struggle and helping us think about it a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think there's more than that, which I I don't know if I said well enough in the paper, but (laughs) maybe I can say better in a podcast. But I think that the dominant conceptions of equity, the the standards-based math instruction and complex instruction, kind of the the, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not hitting or bashing on those things at all. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of times when people are, are advocating for those pedagogies and and really working towards those practices and only those practices, I think that a lot of times that's like, okay, well we're working towards equity. Like we can check off the equity box because we are doing these things. And there, I don't think there's consensus in our in the in the math ed community um, that that isn't enough. I think there, I. I, I mentioned some of some of the work where people have said there's more than one road to equity and this is one road and so i think that it's not just that it's hard it's also that some people have made a decision that that the critical practices are 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 really not necessary maybe because um, we don't really know what it contributes it's too controversial it makes teachers uncomfortable um school districts and communities aren't going to stand for it maybe for all of those different reasons people are just saying no 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 you know what like we don't need to do that we're going to handle equity in these other ways Mm -hmm. um and so i don't think it's just that it's hard i think there's also the fact when things are dominant they're dominant for a reason and, and things that are dominant try to preserve their dominance yeah well, I want to say um, from the field, thank you for you taking on that work and helping push our thinking in that direction and giving us this illustration of why it is so important to 
um, have this full view of equity-oriented pedagogy. But I want to now move to the, the kind of elephant in the room, which is the fact that this article has gotten a lot of attention from a lot of different sources. And then you personally have gotten a lot of attacks for your scholarly work in this area. So first of all, in case people haven't heard or haven't been following um, on social media or online or haven't seen the Fox News story, I wanted to give you a chance to just say from your perspective what your experience has been like the last week or so related to this article. Right. So, um, you know, when I was um, looking at the final proof of the article before it was going to come out online, Joom is an open access journal. And so I knew that this had really um, high high stakes attached to it. Um, And there's a section of the paper that is about race. I think I titled it... um, Facing Race in uh, Math Education. I talk there about the situation of, of hyper-segregated schools. This is, this is the, the state of, of the schools in New York City. It's a, it's a shameful fact, but the black and brown kids go to one group of schools and white and Asian kids go to another other group of schools. People in New York City uh, most of the time maybe don't realize or just try to ignore it, but this is, this is how it is. So I, I'm writing in that context of these of these de facto segregated schools. I'm writing about how things aren't fair. <laughs> Seems to me like a, hardly a controversial point, but mm-hmm. the, the the kids who are in the the black and brown kids who are in their own schools have uh, less qualified teachers, um, less uh, access to advanced courses, uh, poor facilities. I mean, just kind of you name it, and. Beyond that, um, we've got uh, this kind of myth that all you have to do is work hard and people are talking all about grit and, you know, you just have to like hunker down and and try harder. And this kind of enrages me because in this, I mean, looking at these schools, like what, what, do, we really, what do we expect these kids to do? They, they, they didn't even have a qualified math teacher and now the, here they are in, in 10th grade and they just have never even been given any kind of um, access to anything and we're going to tell them you need to try harder. Um, mm-hmm. So what, what the, the, the phrasing that I use that I think particularly enraged um, certain parts of our society is that I called the myth of the meritocracy, I called it a, a tool of whiteness and that's not my phrasing, I'm, I'm borrowing there, I'm quoting um, Brie Pickler's article where she talks about um, the whole article is all about tools of whiteness and so I'm using her phrasing mm-hmm. just to kind of um, bring in these tools of whiteness as a way to understand uh, the challenges for teacher, for white teachers of, of taking on um, critical equity directed practices. Mm-hmm. And so I think for the, I don't think people are reading these um, journal articles. I think they have some kind of um, Google Scholar alert kind of thing where they're you looking for phrases like whiteness mm-hmm. that produce, that Scholar alert produced this paper for them. And they went to, I mean, I think this stuff happens like on the second page. And so they just pulled out this part that is clear to be a lightning rod and put that on uh, campus reform. And campus reform is kind of, as I've learned, I was never a reader of campus reform before, but I've learned quite a lot about it. They, they are kind of the, the ones that, that start the landslide. They published uh, this article saying that I have these opinions, and then it just got picked up by the, the, the whole 
gamut from Breitbart, Daily Mail, Fox News ran two different um, television stories about it. And in all cases, oddly enough, they had full screen um, shots of my picture, my photograph, which, you know, you have to wonder what, what was the purpose of that um, with these kind of alarming headlines as if I had done something that hurt someone in some way. And, you know, all of these sites have open comment streams and the campus reform article directed people directly to my website, which has my email address. Mm-hmm. And I was flooded with all kinds of um, unpleasant messages and demands that I be fired. Um, and, and really, unpleasant, unpleasant is, a, is a kind adjective mm-hmm. for the kind of... I, I made a folder on my email called hate mail and just dumped it all in there um, because they went after me, I guess, inspired by the, the stories that I dare kind of challenge the power structures that be, but the comments were all about me being a woman, me being Jewish, me being gay. Um, the com- they just went after me not on the basis of my ideas but just to ca- to call me re- many as many mean and ugly names as they could well obviously i and many others are sorry that you've had to go through that it's it's clearly unfair and we see you know the method community sees the value in the work that you're doing so i want to first of all just say thank you for doing this work and sorry that you've had to deal with this Maybe this can be a chance, and we talked before we were recording about using this as a chance to be maybe a learning opportunity for our field. It's not the first time somebody's been attacked like this. Um, Rochelle Gutierrez, for example, has been attacked in a similar way um, for similar kinds of ideas. And unfortunately, this won't be the last time that people get attacked for taking on these important issues in math education. So do you have any thoughts? Uh, Maybe it's kind of early, but I wonder, as you're processing all of this, do you have thoughts for the field about how we can be prepared to respond or to move forward from or to make the most of these kind of terrible attacks that come through? Well, I think one thing is that um, I think it would be foolish to think that the attacks are about only about my ideas. I recently got a chance to, to watch a video of um, Dan Meyer's talk last summer at, at something called MathFest, and he basically uses the same framing um, that I did, mm. kind of argues that the, the meritocracy is, is a myth and things are not really fair. And by pretending that it is, we're really only perpetuating the, the status quo. Mm-hmm. And, and Dan Meyer is great. And he's a great speaker and a great guy. But he's also, he's also a white guy. And it's possible that he has some pushback from that talk, but he didn't get... He wasn't on Fox News and he wasn't... Um, I don't think, um, you know, I don't think he was subject to the kind of hate mail that, that Rochelle and I have gotten. I think it's really easy to go after women. It's easy to go after people of color. It's easy to go after Jews. It's easy to go after gay people. And so I wish that um, more of the white guys in the field, and I'm using that really loosely with with quotes. Um, my fingers are um, uh, making quotes in the air as I say that, but I wish that more of the white guys would really take a strong stand um, and say, well, we're not going to stand for this and we have your back. And Dan Meyer actually is one of the one of the few white guys who, who has stood up for me publicly on Twitter. Otherwise, um, even though they, people have been turned to, it's been hard to get... Um, it's been hard to get the white guys to stand up and say, no, 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 like, we agree with her, and, you know, we've got her back. 
Uh, I'm not, I can't really explain that. I don't know why, but most of the support has come from other people who, who know what it feels like um, kind of to be on the, on the marginalized side of society and are just, just know that they have to, to stand up for what they know is right. It's been, it's been mostly those people. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing I think. Um, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I've never met you, but you're, you seem to be a white guy. Um, and so you're doing this podcast and that's great. And so um, you might take some heat for this. I don't know. But to all you white guys out there listening, um, you matter. Um, and it'd be great when things like this happen for you to stick your neck out and take a risk of um, standing up for people who who might need you that's one thing Mm -hmm. Uh, another thing is uh, that I've learned is how amazing our uh, professional organizations are there's all kinds of talk these days that like in the in the era of social media we don't need professional organizations in the way that we that we once did and I think the NCTM and AMTE and and uh, my union all of those organizations were were so great about um, really quickly expressing their support and mobilizing people and I think that if people are not a member of of those organizations you might want to especially young people who maybe uh, think that that's kind of outdated it seems like we really need those organizations and I'm really thankful that I had their support Mm -hmm. and then I'll just share some things that we've been talking about here at the University of Missouri we've been talking about trying to think about how to take the negative attention that they try to put on these and spin it into something positive like bringing more attention to your ideas or let more people know about the work that you're doing that others are doing to address racism in math education to address some of the structural problems to try to just generally take up kind of equity issues in education hopefully is kind of backfiring like for them it's backfiring right because they would hope that you would get fired and that you know, your article would get burned in a pyre, you know, and what instead what we're going to do is like, no, we're going to make sure as many people download it and read it and take it seriously as we can. Does that make sense to you? Or is that, um, does that seem productive in some way? Not thinking about just you personally, but just if this were to happen in the future, again, as a chance to put more attention on it. Right. I mean, we could, um, we could kind of think of these as like the banned books, right? Aren't there organizations out there Mm -hmm. who kind of celebrate like the books that are attempted to be banned. So these are the articles. These are the things that for whatever reason, and it's not that that I was saying anything um, altogether new or altogether radical, but it happened at a particular moment in our society where those things um, are so controversial and I happen to be the one who said it right at that moment. And um, so I think, I don't know, we could kind of think of these as um, milestone moments of, not, it's not sure reading the article matters, but also why was this so controversial? And I think that to ignore the sure we can kind of push aside the hate mail, but I think it does. It would make sense for people not only to read the articles but also to look at the at the nature of the pushback to them because uh, those things are out there. This is what what lots of people think, and I think. Um, it's not usual. It's actually never happened to me before to have my thoughts vetted on Fox News. Um, mm-hmm. But it is there is there is an opportunity there of like, oh, okay, this is how this sounds to to these people, these people who are my neighbors and my co-Americans, and this is how they're pushing back against this. And I need to really understand their arguments so that I can even have a way to have a conversation. 
Um, and I think if we just kind of only read the articles and we forget about the violence that it that it prompted, I think we maybe miss an opportunity at um, how we can do a better job of I don't know if it's convincing or whatever communicating with these with these people that um, that these ideas really do make sense. Um, I have to believe in that, otherwise, uh, you know, I don't know I don't know what else to do. Well, thank you so much for sharing some of that advice and thoughts um, drawing from this kind of horrible experience that you've gone through. Um, just personally, how are you doing with all of this? I can't imagine what it's like. I never expected to see my my picture um, on Fox News, <laughs> and all of this has it's been kind of surreal, but I just want to make sure that everybody knows that, that nobody's done anything to hurt me. I mean, they haven't been nice to me. Um, and it certainly hasn't been pleasant, but but I'm fine. I still um, I'm doing my thing, and they're not going to intimidate me, and nothing is going to change for me. I do uh, want don't want people to kind of in all the like fuss about the the, the hate mail and about and about like Lori and how does she receive that. I don't want us to forget that the real issue is is what I wrote about in the paper that our schools are in the in the state that they're in that we've got hyper segregated schools in our biggest and richest city in the United States New York City that the, the situation with the schools there is simply unacceptable and I don't want people to lose sight of that reality and grounding of my paper and 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 worry about kind of the the personal side for me I'm I'm good I'm 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 as good as ever and I will keep on trucking Lori Rubel is a professor at Brooklyn College. Lori, thanks so much for taking the time um, right now to speak with us. It's great to hear from you and glad that you are doing well and that you are continuing on unaffected. Thanks for having me. 